This is a Rooster Teeth production. July 17, 1996. TWA Flight 800, a Boeing 747 with 230 people on board, is taking off from New York's JFK Airport, bound for Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport, then onto Leonardo da Vinci Airport in Rome. The flight has been delayed for over an hour over suspicions that there may be unattended baggage in the cargo hold. Once they are finally underway, the jumbo jet is climbing through 13,000 feet east of New York on its way up to its cruising altitude. Suddenly, an explosion rips through the plane, separating the fourth third of the plane from the aft section. The cockpit plunges into the ocean while the body of the plane climbs another 1,500 feet into the sky before plummeting into the Atlantic Ocean below. The FBI suspects a bomb has brought down the plane. Eyewitnesses report seeing a missile streaking through the sky towards the plane. The NTSB does not believe either of those theories, but can't immediately explain what happened. Over the next four years, they worked to get to the bottom of this mystery. What did the NTSB find? What brought down TWA 800? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. That was a, that was a hell of a tease, Gus. It's a hell of a tease. I, I was very intimidated, actually, about this particular <laughs> episode. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'll explain why in just a second. Before I get to that, I do want to remind people to follow us on social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you can follow us uh, at Black Box Down Pod. We post supplemental content out there. You may see some stuff that, you know, helps further explain exactly what's going on. You know, when we're restricted to audio only, sometimes we can't paint the full picture. We do our best, but uh, sometimes it helps to see an image or a video that we may post on social media. Yeah. And I want to thank everyone. We we just started a Facebook page for the show recently and, and everyone who's been interacting in that and, and posting and sharing it. Uh, really great to help uh, launch launch that. Yeah. So thank you. It's a good way to share the podcast. You know, we'll, we'll post little little clips and like I said, supplemental material. It's a good way to get other people to listen. Give it a, give it a, a recommendation. So this was a, a really landmark incident, TWA 800. And there are a lot of conspiracy theories about this incident. And I'm going to, right off the bat, I'm going to say, we're not going to, we're not going to get into that. I'm not, I don't believe the conspiracy theory side okay. of this. Like I said, some people say there was a missile, that they saw a missile hit the plane. Mm-hmm. When the investigation was ongoing, before the NTSB had released any findings, the FBI came out and said there was a bomb, you know, without <laughs> consulting uh-huh. the NTSB. And the NTSB is like... What are you talking about? There's no, there's no way there was a bomb on this plane. No, it was, it was a wild investigation. Like I said, it took four years for them to figure it out. Yeah. A little bit of a spoiler for uh, what, something we're talking about later. The way they ended up having to figure out what happened was they had to find every piece of wreckage they could, and they tried to rebuild the plane. What? They put all the pieces back together to try to reconstruct the plane as much as they could to figure out what happened to it. Oh, my God. Wait, wait, and where did... Where did it land? It crashed in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, east of New York City. How visible was it from New York City? Like, could you see it? I mean, yeah, there, you could because people, there were eyewitnesses who said they saw uh, yeah. a missile come from uh, the ground and go up and hit the plane. That's nuts. Well, technically, they said they saw the missile come from a boat. Uh, they said there were, there were uh, naval exercises going on at the time in the waters there. And they claimed that a U.S. Navy ship shot down this plane. What? I don't want to give, get into it too much, but... They said that during their training exercise, they believe that the U.S. Navy mistakenly locked onto this plane and shot it down with a missile. Subsequent investigations have shown that is not the case. All of the ordnance on the ship is accounted for. In my mind, every point brought up by the conspiracy theory side of things is disproven factually. Okay. That's why I don't want to give it too much time. I don't want to give it too much credence. It also sounds kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I'm sure there are conspiracy podcasts out there that have talked about this if you're interested in that kind of thing. I'm just going off the facts here. Okay. So like I said, TWA 800 was a passenger flight. 
it was a Boeing 747. It was going from New York's JFK to Rome, but it was stopping in Paris on the way there. It was on July 17th, 1996. The flight was crewed by Captain Ralph Kevorkian, who was 58 years old, had about 18,800 flight hours. And there was another captain who was uh, operating as a Czech airman for this flight, Steve Snyder, who was 57 years old, had about 17,000 flight hours. And when I say he's a Czech airman, he's, he was do- they were doing that thing where the captain was getting evaluated. So there was another captain in the cockpit with him as his co-pilot kind of watching over everything. There was also a flight engineer trainee who was Oliver Crick, who was 24 years old, had about 2,520 flight hours. And he also had a flight engineer Czech airman whose name was Richard Campbell, who was 63 and had about 3,047 hours as an engineer. But he was also a 747 pilot for several years before that, before he became an engineer. So four people in the cockpit, you know, uh, with some training and with some checks going on. The airplane was a 25-year-old Boeing 747 with 93,303 hours and 16,869 cycles. There were 14 other crew members on board and 212 passengers. 20 of those passengers were off-duty TWA employees, and there were 16 high school French club students with five chaperones. Oh, that's always sad when they're students. Yeah, I assume they were going to, you know, France as part yeah. of their French club. Damn. Yeah, awful. So on the day of the accident, the airplane had departed Athens, Greece, and landed at JFK at about 4.31 p.m. New York time. And like I always say, that flight did not experience any abnormalities. Totally normal flight, nothing out of the ordinary. The plane remained at its gate with the APU and two of the three air conditioning packs operating for about two and a half hours. The APU, of course, is the auxiliary power unit. It's a uh, non-thrust producing engine in the plane that just provides electrical power for the plane. So like I said, it was just running off the APU and two of the air conditioners were operating for two and a half hours as it was uh, sitting there on the ground. Mm -hmm. The flight was originally scheduled to depart at 7 p.m., but it was delayed because of disabled ground equipment and there were concerns about a suspected passenger and baggage mismatch. Uh, basically, they were worried that there was a bag on the plane, but without a passenger. Oh. Yeah. It became required that passengers had to be on the plane with their bags. After 1986, there was a bombing of an Air India flight where someone put a bag on the plane and then they didn't get on the plane. And it turned out there was a bomb in the bag. So now, if the passenger's not on the plane, their bag gets taken off. That's still into effect today. So they were like, okay, mismatch bag. This might be getting ahead of myself. They, did they get it off? They ended up finding the passenger. He was actually on the plane. Oh. But they had to delay. Like They had to figure okay. out, like, oh, they, at first, you know, they have to go through, like, oh, we got to find the bag. They got to find the passenger. Then they found the passenger. It was, it's just one of those things where it's like they yeah. got to figure out what's going on. They think there's a potential problem, so they got to figure it out. Yeah. The crew shut the cockpit door at 8 p.m., you know, which was an hour after they were scheduled to depart. And the crew began to prepare for departure. Between 8.05 and 8.08, they powered up the engines and received taxi instructions to runway 22 right. At 8.17 p.m., flight 800 lined up on 22 right, and a minute later, they were cleared for takeoff, and they became airborne at 8.19 p.m. At 8.26, they were instructed to maintain 13,000 feet. A few minutes later, the captain said, look at that crazy fuel flow indicator there on number four. See that? Hmm? You know, we've talked about the um, fuel flow indicators. It's like the gas gauge, right? The, I guess, well, not really the gas gauge, but it's the indicator of the, um, the fuel flow for the number four engine, how much fuel is getting to the engine. It was acting a little weird. This is the only time they mentioned it on the cockpit voice recorder. Okay. And I think that it was just like kind of jumping back and forth. It wasn't giving a consistent oh. reading. Hmm. So it was just acting up. And this is the only time on the, on the CVR that they mentioned this. At 8.30, air traffic control instructed them to climb to 15,000 feet. They set thrust to climb power. And over the next 30 seconds, there were the following sounds. There was a sound similar to a mechanical movement in the cockpit, an unintelligible word, 
and then sounds similar to recording tape damage noise. Oh, no. At 8.31 and 12 seconds, the cockpit voice recording ended. A very loud sound was recorded for a fraction of a second immediately before the recording ended. The damage noise that was recorded is likely the result of water damage to the tape head. The portion of the tape that contained sounds from the last seconds before the CVR stopped recording was exposed to water after the accident. So, you know, there's some damage, you know, they have to account for. Okay. The airplane's last recorded radar transponder return occurred at the same second the CVR stopped recording. And the flight data recorder lost power at the exact moment as well. So, you know, that tells you Mm -hmm. there was a catastrophic failure. Everything stopped, you know, at the same time. CVR stopped, FDR stopped, and it was the last radar transponder return. So if you don't know what happened, you can assume all electrical went out or the plane crashed. Like there was a catastrophic event at that moment. And probably that explosion. Yeah. According to the Boston Area Control Transcript, at 8.31 and 50 seconds, the captain of another flight reported that he just saw an explosion up ahead of us, about 16,000 feet or something like that. It just went down into the water. At the same time, air traffic control facilities in the New York and Long Island area received reports of an explosion from other pilots. Many witnesses in the area stated that they saw and heard explosions accompanied by a large fireball over the ocean and observed debris falling into the water. About one-third of the witnesses reported that they observed a streak of light resembling a flare moving upward in the sky to the point where a large fireball appeared. Several of the witnesses reported seeing the fireball split into two as it descended toward the water. Mm. Pieces of the wreckage were discovered floating on and beneath the surface of the Atlantic Ocean about eight miles south of East Moriches, New York. I apologize. I, I don't know how to say that. <laughs> I think it's Moriches. I'm sure someone who lives there in the area uh, will know better and let us know on social media. And as you would probably guess, there were no survivors uh, from this oh, incident. You say that, but I was like, maybe, maybe, just maybe. <laughs> no, no, unfortunately not. So pieces of the wreckage were distributed along a northeasterly path about four miles long and three and a half miles wide off the coast of Long Island. Scuba divers and remote-operated vehicles were used to recover victims and wreckage. In the late stages of recovery, scallop trawlers were used to recover pieces of wreckage that had become embedded in the ocean floor. The recovery effort alone took more than 10 months to complete. Oh, man. Yeah, and over this time, the remains of all 230 victims were recovered and identified. When you say the, the recovery, were they at this point pulling the plane out of the water, or as much, or did that happen later? Yeah, at this point, you know, uh, they are finding it and pulling it all out. It took 10 months to do that. How do you pull something that big out of the... I mean, I don't know if it's all in one piece, but how do you get it out? I don't know specifically, but I mean, you could hook it up to, like, for example, a tugboat. Uh, I've also seen there are, like, little floating barges with heavy equipment on them. Mm -hmm. You know, you could put, like, a backhoe or, like, a crane on a barge and put it out there and pull things up that way. You need specialized equipment, and you got to be careful when you do that stuff, you know? So most of the examination of the pieces of wreckage were completed within one year of the accident, but some of the examination was ongoing until mid-2000. And remember, this incident was in July of 96. Yeah. So the way they approached this is they split up the debris field into three different zones, just like to organize it so they knew mm-hmm. what was going on. Because you said the cockpit fell, but then the rest of the plane kept climbing for a bit? Yes. So like the engines were still going and it just kept going up? Right. So if you think about it, the the fuel is in, you know, typically in the middle of the plane and the wings. So the fuel was still feeding the engines. There was just no control over them. So the cockpit essentially fell off and the plane kept going and providing lift. That's so wild. It's it's almost like this is might be a bad analogy, but you know how like those things where you say you you know, you a, a chicken loses its head and it still runs around? Yeah, you're right. That is a bad analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, I mean, I, I think it's actually, it's it's very appropriate, right? It's very apt, I should say. 
it's pretty much the same thing. You know, there was no control over it. There was no, nothing you could do, but mm-hmm. the rest of the machinery was still operating as it was intended. Yeah. So you actually hit on something there when you said the, the cockpit separated. That's one of the reasons that they split this recovery zone into three zones, into three mm-hmm. smaller zones. So the first zone was the red zone. And this was the part that was located closest to JFK, like furthest west. The section of plane that landed in this zone was mostly the part of the fuselage that was aft of the forward cargo hold and forward of the wings. None of the pieces in this area exhibited damage that was as severe as the other zones. This zone contained the least amount of actual airplane pieces in it. Hmm. The yellow zone was the second zone. and It was the smallest zone. It was on the northeast side of the red zone. And this zone contained the forward fuselage. The wreckage in this area did not exhibit any evidence of fire or heat damage, and there was no evidence of foreign impact found. The altimeters were found and examined and displayed an altitude of about 13,800 feet, and the clocks were stopped at 8.31 p.m. A little further east from there was the green zone, and this was the zone furthest from JFK. And most of the airplane was found in this section. It was both wings, all four engines, and the aft fuselage. The wreckage recovered here exhibited heavy soot deposits and severe heat and fire damage. The way the diagrams looked, the section of the airplane just forward of the wings broke apart and fell to the ocean first. The forward fuselage was separated from the wings and the aft section and fell into the ocean next. And the whole rest of the plane kept going for a little bit before falling into the ocean last. Uh, Like I said earlier, the aft section probably continued to climb for another 1,000 to 1,500 feet after the forward section separated before it ultimately fell into the ocean as well. Hmm. So the NTSB carried out the investigation And based on initial information, they considered some possible causes for the in-flight structural breakup. The first consideration was a structural failure and decompression. Close examination of the wreckage revealed no evidence of pre-existing airplane structural faults that could have contributed to the in-flight breakup. And an example of something like this would have been like the Japan Airlines 123 flight, where there was a weakened Mm -hmm. part of the plane that over time, you know, stress has developed and the plane broke because of structural fault. They they could not find any evidence like that here. Yeah, because it it seems like that would have like had a boom and then like hit the engine and then had an explosion, right? Right. The timing's a little strange here. Like if you think about what I said was in the zones, there's like pieces seemingly of almost like the cargo hold first, then the cockpit and then the rest of the plane. So if you think about that, what hits the water first, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself here, Uh but what hit the water first would almost be like what exploded or what broke apart. Right. That's the stuff that fell first. So that's kind of where you're going to want to focus. The NTSB did find minimal corrosion damage and some small fatigue cracks in some parts of the plane, but none of these were close to being bad enough to cause the airplane to break apart mid-flight. So all stuff that's within tolerances. Mm-hmm. It was suggested that the breakup could have been initiated by the in-flight separation of the Ford cargo door, which you remember was very similar to what happened in United 811, which we talked about recently, the one from uh, Hawaii where the cargo door opened. Oh, yeah, yeah. However, you know, they looked into that, right? Mm Because, I mean, the United 811 flight that we talked about was February 89. This is seven years later. Those repairs should have been done. So, But they still want to look into it because it's the same kind of plane. It's also a 747. Mm -hmm. However, all eight of the latching cams remained attached to the pins along the lower door, and there were no indications of pre-impact failure of the hinge at the top of the door. So they looked Mm -hmm. at the pieces that we talked about specifically, and they were all... Locked and secure. Scratch that off the list. So that did not happen. Just want to mention <laughs> that because we recently covered that. Same kind uh-huh. of plane, similar uh, circumstance. So therefore, the NTSB concludes that the in-flight breakup was not initiated by a pre-existing condition resulting in a structural failure and decompression. You say pre-existing condition is in for that particular plane or something that right. they've... Okay. Right. There was not you know an existing fatigue or something wrong structurally with the plane that, have, that would have caused this. Okay. 
So several factors led to speculation that the accident might have been caused by a bomb or a missile strike. Uh, if you remember at the time, like, again, like I said, this is July of 1996, there were heightened security concerns because the 1996 Olympics were being held in the United States. They, uh, they were held oh, in Atlanta, but still, yeah. you know, there was heightened security because of that. And the fact that this flight was international and the sudden and catastrophic nature of the in-flight breakup. Plus, this was a, a turbulent time in general in history. People were on edge because, if you remember, there was a World Trade Center bombing in 1993 and there was the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. So people were a little worried about uh, terrorism. And they wondered if this could be a bomb. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, in addition, numerous witnesses reported seeing a streak of light and then a fireball. And some people believe this was a missile that hit the plane. There were also some primary radar targets recorded in the vicinity of Flight 800 that could not be explained or identified. Mm. Testing performed by the FBI found trace amounts of explosives on three separate pieces of airplane wreckage, uh, which is why they immediately said that it was a bomb. Oh, they found some trace amounts of explosive residue, and it's strange. They actually immediately held a press conference and <laughs> said there was a bomb. And, the, you know, the NTSB was, I'm sure, shaking their head like, what? You didn't tell us any of this. We, did, we, we didn't support this. Yeah, wait, I didn't. Do they not coordinate with each other? Is that? They were both working on this. And you could tell, I, I've watched interviews with some of them, uh -huh. with both sides. I've watched interviews with FBI agents who worked on this case. And I've watched interviews with the NTSB agents who worked on this case. And, you know, the FBI approaches it as a criminal investigation because that's their job. Yeah. The NTSB agents who were investigating it said that they were frustrated because the FBI is not used to looking into this kind of thing. They're not used to yeah. investigating aviation incidents. And of course, there's there's some friction there, like territory, like you always see in, in you know, TV shows, like it's my jurisdiction, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I'm handling this investigation, like that kind of thing, yeah. you know. This is my case now. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, there's some uh, jostling over who's actually running the investigation. Uh-huh. So I'm sure the FBI assumed they were in charge, which is why they didn't feel the need to coordinate that. And you said they found trace amounts of explosives. What does that mean? Like, couldn't that just be like gas and parts of an airplane? Like, Well, I specifically, um, I, I didn't want to get too much into the chemistry of it. Uh -huh. The kinds of residue they found were very similar to the chemicals you would find in C4. Okay. So it's not just because it was fuel or something benign. It was very specifically explosive residue that they recovered and they found. And I'm assume you're going to say that there are those chemicals in something in the plane anyway? We're going to get into that. Okay. <laughs> I, I will I will say this. If you remember several episodes ago, we had our airplane story episode. Uh-huh. Remember when you spent the day at the beach and then you went to the airport oh. and they found explosive residue on you? Uh-huh. Sometimes there are false positives. Sometimes yeah. there are benign explanations for why you find this residue. We'll get into it in more detail here in a minute. Yeah. I just want to remind you, it's not always 100% accurate. Yeah, personal experience. I've had explosive residue on me. Right, exactly. Sand. You've been through this. It was sand. <laughs> So in total, only about 5% of the fuselage was not recovered. So they found most of it. Okay. But none of the areas that were missing were large enough to have encompassed all of the damage that would have been caused by the detonation of a bomb or missile. So it was minor, the amount that was uh, missing. Okay. And the remains of the victims also showed no evidence of injuries that could have been caused by high-energy explosives. Oh. So the NTSB first thought the explosive traces that were found by the FBI were from transporting troops in 1991 or from a dog training exercise that took place a month before the accident. But the FAA indicated that the residue of explosives would dissipate completely after two days of immersion in seawater, and almost none of the wreckage was recovered in the first two days. So the theory is that the residue was not on the plane during the accident because, like we said, after two days in the water, it would be gone. But rather, the residue was deposited during the recovery operations by military personnel, ships, and ground vehicle that were used during the recovery. 
So despite being unable to determine the exact source of the trace amounts of explosive residue found, the lack of corroborating evidence associated with the high energy explosive indicates these trace amounts did not result from a detonation of an explosive device on the flight. Basically, they say it was probably military personnel and vehicles who were part of the recovery effort. Some residue may have rubbed off of them onto the wreckage. Yeah, that makes sense. So it was clear from the wreckage recovery that the first pieces to depart the plane were from the area in and around the airplane wing center section, which indicates the central wing fuel tank. And therefore, the breakup must have been initiated in this area. So like I said earlier, they're looking at the pieces that hit the water first in that red zone. And they're like, what parts of this plane is this? Oh, it's around the center wing fuel tank. Uh So none of these pieces showed evidence of prolonged fire exposure. However, some pieces were lightly sooted, indicating there was some fire associated with the initial event in this area. So not a sustained fire necessarily, but maybe they were exposed to a little bit of fire. Yeah. Analysis of the pieces from this area of the plane showed some sort of overpressure occurred in the central wing fuel tank. The NTSB also found the conditions experienced in the airplane indicated the fuel vapor temperature in the central wing fuel tank at the time of the accident ranged from 101 to 127 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 38 Celsius to 53 Celsius. Jet A fuel vapor under conditions simulating the pressure, altitude, and fuel mass loading of Flight 800 are flammable at these temperatures. Uh, They're actually flammable as low as about 96 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 36 Celsius. So initially, when the NTSB started looking into this, they started wondering if, you know, the fuel vapor was uh, combustible at this point. Boeing said that it was impossible, you know, that it would have to reach 96 degrees and there's no way that the fuel vapor would have reached 96 degrees. But when they're trying to recreate this incident, they see the fuel vapor would have actually been hotter than that. So it was a possibility. So the vapor? So Right. Remember, like I've said before, jet fuel itself is not explosive. Uh-huh. The fuel burns, but it's not explosive. The vapor, though, that's a different story. Jet vapor could be explosive. Oh. How does the vapor, like, where does it go and what, how does it... So at this point, the vapor would have been in the fuel tank. So the fuel is getting so hot in the tank that there's fuel vapor in there is basically gotcha. what's happening. So they start wanting to dig into this. Like, oh, you know, initially they thought it wasn't possible that there could be vapor. But when they're recreating the incident, they see, oh, it is actually hot enough for there to be vapor. So questions were raised about whether a fuel air explosion in the central wing fuel tank without any additional force could generate enough pressure to break apart the fuel tank and, you know, lead to this incident. So they did a test uh-huh. in order to try to recreate this, uh, this scenario. And they do this test in England where they simulate a fuel air explosion in the central wing fuel tank in an out-of-service 747. And the results indicated that the tank structure failed as a result of overpressure. And I'm going to explain that here in a second. Okay. And the NTSB recognizes the test conditions for this were not fully comparable to the one that occurred on Flight 800, but two previous incidents confirmed that a central wing fuel tank involving Jet A fuel can break apart the fuel tank and lead to the destruction of an airplane. So Boeing said, you know, when they're doing this investigation, Boeing said that this really wasn't possible, that even if there was an explosion in that center fuel tank, that it would not create enough pressure to rupture the fuel tank and cause a breakup. Because Boeing said that that center fuel tank could contain pressure up to 25 PSI. And that mm-hmm. even if there was fuel vapor explosion, that it wouldn't exceed 25 PSI and that it would be contained in the, in the fuel tank. However, during the test, they found peak pressure between 39.2 and 52.5 PSI, which exceeds the, uh, the pressure that Boeing said the fuel tank could hold by over double. Without the explosion? Oh, with the explosion. With okay. the explosion, you know, the, the peak pressure would hit at most 52.5 PSI, which would rupture the tank and would cause, you know, failure 
This failure would initiate failure of the central wing fuel tank structure, which would cause it to break apart and explode. Okay. A computer analysis simulating conditions of Flight 800 indicated that a localized ignition of the vapor could have generated pressure levels that would cause the damages observed in the wreckage of the central wing fuel tank. And if you remember, like I said, these are the pieces of the plane that fell down first. Yeah. It seems to be like there was some kind of explosion here in the central fuel tank that caused the plane to break apart. And the NTSB concludes that, you know, they conclude that a fuel air explosion in the central wing fuel tank would have been capable of generating sufficient internal pressure to break apart that tank. But what would have made it explode? God, you, you ask <laughs> the perfect questions at the perfect time sometimes, Chris. That is exactly the question. So we know that an explosion could have caused this, but where does that spark come from, right? Where does that ignition come yeah. from that causes the explosion? So the NTSB evaluates several potential ignition sources that could have caused this explosion and uh, trust me, they went through everything, Chris. I mean, <laughs> they thought, what if there was a weird lightning strike that came in through an air vent and went into the fuel tank? Uh-huh. At one point, they even thought, what if there was a micrometeor strike that hit the what? plane? Right. I mean, they wanted to be as thorough as possible. Incidentally, they contacted a meteorite expert. And he, what? He, he estimated that a meteorite could be expected to strike a plane once every 59,000 to 77,000 years. Oh my God. So not, that would have been a hell of a chance. It would have been a hell of a chance. There was no evidence of high velocity penetration through the exterior that would have been from a meteorite strike. So they don't think it was, they ruled out a meteorite. But like I said, this was a four year long investigation. They wanted to be as thorough as possible. So they ruled out meteorites. Okay. They also looked into some of those stuff we talked about. Uh, missile fragments, uh, you know, explosive charges, fire coming from somewhere else, uncontained engine failure, static electricity. I mean, they looked at everything yeah. to try to figure out what would have uh, caused this. And like I said, a missile fragment, it was one of the things they investigated. It would not have left any damage characteristics of a missile strike. So this couldn't be ruled out by evidence alone, but the missile fragment would have had to penetrate multiple layers of material to get yeah. to the fuel tank. The possibility of a straight line entry path is limited. And like I said, with the meteorite, there was no characteristics of a high velocity penetration. So they don't think it was a missile or a missile fragment either. They don't think it was explosive charge because the damage characteristics found in the wreckage were not caused by a small explosive charge. So they're going through and they're they're looking at all of these things and ruling out what they can. Yeah, okay. They even tried to figure out if maybe fire started in one fuel tank and spread to this one. Oh yeah, like is somewhere else a completely different problem? Right. Yeah. They ultimately ruled that out. They looked and the tanks have like a vent protection system that would keep that from happening. I'm not going to get into all the technical details about it, but I mean, they they looked at all of these different things. They even looked into static electricity, like I said, and yeah. to see if that would have ignited the vapor. And they did some tests in conditions similar to this flight. And in tests, the highest discharge they could produce was about 0. 0.03 millijoules. And it takes 0. 0.25 millijoules to ignite fuel vapor. So it's only what, like an eighth of yeah. the discharge that would have been required. So they also ruled out static electricity as well. When it comes to car and home insurance, don't we deserve better? I mean, I know I do. So I put my policy to the test and I turn to Gabby. They literally stand for get a better insurance. Get it, Gabby, G-A-B-I, get a better insurance. Getting better insurance with Gabby means a better price for the same insurance coverage. Who knew something like this existed? They're the one true comparison platform with real rates. They give you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers all in one place. Use your current insurance information to get started, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have, and it's free to use. I did it myself. You just link your existing insurance, and it 
sees what you already have and shows you the exact same coverage with other places. Uh, in my case, I already had the best rate, so I didn't do anything, but you could see if you have the best rate. And if you don't, you can take action on it and do something immediately. And Gabby customers save $961 per year on average. They'll never sell your info, so no annoying spams or robocalls. So put your policy to the test like I did. Get a better insurance with Gabby. It's totally free to check. There's no obligation. Go to gabby.com slash blackboxdown. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash blackboxdown. Gabby.com slash blackboxdown. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to Black Box Down. That's totally okay. I get it. You want to listen to some other podcasts. So I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list, actually. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show. It's a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion. Listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-heard-before stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you a more informed, critical thinker to better operate in today's world. I really think there isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or psycho-family situations to relationships and networking to ask for a raise. Hey, that's like getting more money, right? Honestly, I'm a fan. Jordan is GOAT when it comes to podcasting. He's got one of the most highly rated self-development shows out there. Absolutely fascinating and oh, such a great variety of guests. It's always something different. It's amazing. You should just browse through and take a look for yourself. Point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and actionable advice that can directly improve your life. So you can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The only other source of ignition they thought could be possible was from the fuel quantity indication system. Remember I mentioned earlier, yeah. the fuel flow indicator was being a little weird. The only wiring in the central wing fuel tank is from that system, which makes sense. You know, The only wiring is going to be for the fuel quantity system. Yeah. So if you hear me say FQIS, it's the fuel quantity indication system, FYI. We've talked about the FQIS in previous episodes. We talked about it in our first episode, I think, with the Air Canada flight. That's right, yeah. So for the FQIS to have played a role in the ignition of the vapor, the following two events would have had to have occurred. So there would have to have been a transfer of higher than intended voltage onto the FQIS wiring from a power source outside of the fuel tank and the release of that energy from the FQIS wiring into the inside of the fuel tank in a way that could ignite the fuel air vapor in the tank. Because the FQIS is low voltage wiring. So basically yeah. what they're saying here is high voltage from a different system would have had to have gotten onto the wires and then discharged in the tank in order to create the spark. Could a voltage be so strong that it would like break through the wiring? So that's what they have to figure out. Like, you know, this is their work in theory. Like, is it possible that this would even happen? Uh huh. During their testing, they couldn't accurately recreate the conditions that would have been on this flight they think this is most likely the cause, but could not be fully determined. They also found that the silver-coated copper parts inside the fuel tanks can develop silver sulfide deposits. These deposits are semiconductive and can reduce the resistance between electrical connections and they will permit arcing. These deposits can become a potential ignition mechanism inside a fuel tank and the silver-coated copper parts are used in the FQIS system. And these are on the outside of the wiring? Right. It's like a, a coating on the copper parts. Okay. 
So a major reason for the flammability of the fuel air vapor in the central wing fuel tank on the 747 is the large amount of heat generated by the air conditioning packs located directly below the tank. Air conditioning. Yeah, it ran for two hours. Mm-hmm. And remember, I said initially Boeing said there was no way that the fuel would have gotten to the appropriate temperature for there to be vapor. But it turns out that when you run the air conditioners, the air conditioners get hot and the air conditioner packs are directly below the fuel tank. So it was heating up the fuel because... Right. So the air conditioner packs were getting hot because they were running, which was in turn heating up the fuel tank, heating up the fuel, getting it to a temperature where vapor existed. Mm. So therefore, a 747 and other similarly designed planes may operate a significant portion of the time with a flammable fuel air mixture. What? Right, because of the design and the way that this is laid out. Nobody knew this. Nobody realized that this was happening. Oh and, and under these conditions, uh-huh. a single ignition source could cause an explosion and destroy the airplane, which they speculate now is what happened to this flight. The NTSB wrote a letter to the FAA saying that this is inconsistent with the basic tenet of transporting aircraft design and that no single point failure should prevent continued safe flight and landing. Yeah, The NTSB called for the implementation of design or operational changes that will preclude the operation of airplanes with explosive fuel air mixtures in the tanks. I saw an interview with one of the NTSB investigators who, you know, was there when they figured this out. Uh And he said, you know, they went through and they conducted a real world flight where they tried to recreate the TWA uh, incident as much as they could. And they Uh got a 747, they ran the air conditioner and, you know, they took off. And he said, you know, he was on the plane monitoring the temperature when he realized this happened. And he said he never, (laughs) I forget his exact quote, but he said he never wanted to be back on the ground more. Oh my. So he was there and he's like, oh, it's. A bomb right now. <laughs> right. Like this This is extremely dangerous, right? Yeah. The fuel could ignite if there's an ignition source. That's terrifying. So like I said, the NTSB called for these changes. The FAA wanted to focus instead on the preclusion of ignition sources in fuel tanks. So the NTSB says, this is bad design. This needs to be changed. The FAA is saying, well, let's just make sure that there's no ignition sources possible and it won't be a problem. Wow. The FAA did recognize that the air conditioning packs under the fuel tanks did need to be addressed. But the NTSB is worried that the FAA will look to minimize the issue rather than eliminate it. Hmm. And like I said earlier, Boeing said this was impossible for fuel to reach that 96 degree temperature for there to be vapor. And when they were doing this research, like I mentioned, when that investigator was on the plane, they discovered that the air conditioning packs in this scenario reached a temperature of 350 degrees Fahrenheit. 100? To ignite, you said it was what, like 90? 96. But this is the air conditioning pack that's under the fuel tank. So think oh. of it, there's basically an oven under <laughs> under the fuel tank. I, I'm using your oven analogy from a yeah, previous episode. Yeah, that's the worst thing you want under the fuel. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is why the fuel got so hot. Yeah. By the way, 350 Fahrenheit is 177 Celsius. I want to point that out real fast. Basically, they said it's fine. The fuel won't ever reach 96 degrees, but then they put a 350 degree oven under the fuel tanks, <laughs> which heated it up to above 96 degrees, which is what caused the vapor. So... They had some findings here. Yeah, sounds like they did. Right. So there's a lot of findings. (laughs) I'm going to break it down here. I got a few bullet points that uh, that I do want to cover. The in-flight breakup of TWA Flight 800 was not initiated by a pre-existing condition resulting in a structural failure and decompression. I said this earlier. There was no pre-existing condition. There was no structural failure as a result of like a metallurgical problem or something else in the plane. At the time of the accident, there were light winds and scattered clouds in the area, but there were no significant meteorological conditions that might have disrupted the flight. Good weather didn't contribute to this incident. The in-flight breakup of TWA Flight 800 was not initiated by a bomb or a missile strike. Very important one. Side note, I said a few eyewitnesses said they saw uh, like a streaking going up to the plane. 
mm-hmm. like a streaking vapor, like that's what yeah. they thought was a missile. They speculate that what they were really seeing was the aft section of the plane that was still climbing after the cockpit fell off. Oh. Since it was on fire, it would yeah. have been smoking and it was, it it was looked, still rising. Right. Yeah. They think that maybe that's what people saw and that's what they thought was a missile. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to point that out before we get away from it. Yeah, you. if you just see a bunch of things in the sky, mm-hmm. they wouldn't know what's what. Right. The fuel air vapor in TWA Flight 800's center wing fuel tank was flammable at the time of the accident. Mm-hmm. A fuel air explosion in the center wing fuel tank of TWA Flight 800 would have been capable of generating sufficient internal pressure to break apart the tank. So we talked mm-hmm. about they did their experiment. It was enough pressure to cause the explosion. The TWA Flight 800 in-flight breakup was initiated by a fuel air explosion in the center wing fuel tank. Mm -hmm. It is very unlikely that the flammable fuel air vapor in the center wing fuel tank on TWA Flight 800 was ignited by lightning or meteor strike. Again, they have to cover that. (laughs) A missile fragment, a small explosive charge placed on the center wing fuel tank, a fire migrating to the center wing fuel tank from another fuel tank via the vent system, an uncontained engine failure or turbine burst in the air conditioning packs beneath the center wing fuel tank, or static electricity. They're just going through that list I talked about yeah. earlier saying those things nope, 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 did nope. not. Yeah, it's well, they don't, they don't even say no. They say very unlikely. Yeah. You know, they're not going to say 100% no, but they're pretty much saying that. A short circuit producing excess voltage that was transferred to the center wing tank fuel quantity indication system wiring is the most likely source of the ignition energy for the TWA Flight 800 center wing fuel tank explosion. So again, it was probably a short circuit. High voltage wires probably got extra voltage onto the low voltage mm-hmm. wires and it went into the tank and caused the ignition. And it was just some sort of wire freak accident thing where it just got too much energy? So like I said, the plane was 25 years old. Uh-huh. It's possible that there were some bare wire, like, you know, the, the yeah. insulation might have come off and it could be that energy transferred from one wire to another. Because, mm. you know, yeah. the, the, there are high voltage wiring for like the overhead lights. Yeah. That requires a high voltage wiring. And those do run close to the FQIS wiring on this plane. Mm-hmm. So they say that it's possible something is benign as someone turned on a, their light overhead and the extra energy. It energy shot and jumped to the other wire and shot into this. And then because it had that metal coating, it like made a little spark. Exactly. This next finding kind of sums it up, actually. Uh, the ignition energy for the center wing fuel tank explosion most likely entered the center wing fuel tank through the fuel quantity indication system wiring. And although it is possible the release of ignition energy inside the center wing fuel tank was facilitated by the existence of silver sulfide deposits on an FQIS component, neither the energy release mechanism nor the location of the ignition inside the center wing fuel tank could be determined from the available evidence. So they're saying this is their most likely scenario, but they cannot tell you definitively where the energy came from and where the ignition occurred in the tank. Mm -hmm. They don't know, but this is like, yeah, this is probably it. We just don't have... Right. They cannot say definitively, this is exactly where it happened and this is exactly where it came from. But this is the scenario that seems to be the most likely. Yeah. And I got my last finding right here. Okay. The placement of heat generating equipment under a fuel tank containing jet A fuel can unnecessarily increase the amount of time that the airplane is operating with a flammable fuel air mixture unless measures are in place to either prevent the heat from entering the center wing fuel tank or eliminate the flammable vapor inside the center wing fuel tank. So again, just bad placement of their air conditioning packs heated up Mm -hmm. uh, the fuel. The NTSB determined that the probable cause of the TWA Flight 800 accident was an explosion of the center wing fuel tank resulting from ignition of the flammable fuel air mixture in the tank. The source of the ignition energy for the explosion could not be determined with certainty, but of the sources evaluated by the investigation... The most likely was a short circuit outside of the center wing fuel tank 
that allowed excessive voltage to enter it through electrical wiring associated with the FQIS. Yeah. Contributing factors to the accident were the design and certification concept that fuel tank explosions could be prevented solely by precluding all ignition sources and the design and certification of the Boeing 747 with heat sources located beneath the center wing fuel tank with no means to reduce the heat transferred into the center wing fuel tank to render the fuel vapor in the tank non-flammable. So basically, they're just damning the thought process that went into certifying this plane. Yeah. Their thought was to mitigate ignition sources instead of preventing the fuel from getting hot to begin with. Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, a few recommendations based on this, uh, this incident. Require the development and implementation of design or operational changes that will preclude the operation of transport category airplanes with explosive fuel air mixtures in the fuel tanks. Obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's not have explosive fuel air mixture in the fuel tanks. I mean, number one. Yeah. Require modification of the center wing fuel tank of the 747 airplanes and the fuel tanks of other airplanes that are located near heat sources to incorporate temperature probes and cockpit fuel tank temperature displays to permit determination of fuel tank temperatures. Mm-hmm. Give the cockpit crew more information. You know, let, let's monitor what's going on. Yeah. Require research into copper sulfide deposits on fuel quantity indication system parts in fuel tanks to determine the levels of deposits that may be hazardous, how to inspect and clean the deposits, and when to replace the components. So just better maintenance for these components so that mm-hmm. you don't get this... Freak accident. Yeah. Right, you don't get this coating on it that could cause an explosion. Require in all applicable transport airplane fuel tanks surge protection systems to prevent electrical power surges from entering fuel tanks through fuel quantity indication system wires. Makes sense. Yep. Have a system to stop surges from getting there in the first place. Now, would that be an electrical thing or just keeping the wires further apart even or better coded? I believe one of the things they did was you know to separate high voltage and low voltage wiring better yeah. so that this kind of thing didn't happen. But I think the way that they write this recommendation is they're looking for a system to just stop it from getting there yeah. in the first place. I do believe one of the follow-up things was they just separated the wire runs to make it safer. Require the development and implementation of corrective actions to eliminate the ignition risk posed by silver sulfide deposits on fuel quantity indication system components inside the fuel tanks. So this kind of ties in with the one of the other ones that we read earlier. Just, just do some more research into these deposits and figure out ways to um, prevent them from building up and from causing this kind of problem. So after the accident, they had to rebuild the plane to figure out what happened to it. And the wreckage was all taken to an NTSB facility in Ashburn, Virginia. And they reconstructed the entire plane. And they kept this plane reconstruction together. And they used it to train accident investigators. Oh, yeah. I guess if they went to the trouble of putting it all together. Huh. Mm-hmm. But actually this year in 2021, it was decided that the methods taught using the wreckage were no longer relevant to modern accident investigation, which now uses you know new technology like 3D yeah. laser scanning and stuff. Uh, the NTSB didn't want to renew the lease on the hangar that it was using to store this reassembled uh, TWA flight, uh, so they decided to dispose of it. As the NTSB had agreements with the victims' families that the wreckage cannot be used in any kind of public memorial, it plans to you know laser scan each piece of debris, archiving that data, and then destroying the wreckage. Hmm. So it's actually going to stop using this reconstruction on July 7th, 2021, which is just 10 days before the 25th anniversary of that crash. July 7th, 2020. Wow. So... The crash of this flight, you know, TWA-800 and ValueJet-592, which is another one that we covered, that was the oxygen generator crash where the oxygen generators activated, oh. caused a fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold. So these two incidents prompted Congress to pass the Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act of 1996 as part of the Federal Aviation Appropriations Bill. 
And among other things, this act gives the NTSB, uh, instead of the airline, responsibility for coordinating services to the family of victims of fatal aircraft accidents in the United States. It also restricts lawyers and other parties from contacting family members within 30 days of the accident, which these are all things that make sense. Yeah, the lawyers will try and sign this. Right, yeah. So the TWA Flight 800 International Memorial was dedicated in a two-acre area at Smith Point County Park in Shirley, New York on July 14, 2004. Funds for the memorial were raised by the families of TWA Flight 800 Association. The memorial includes landscape grounds, flags from the 13 countries of the victims, and a curved Cambrian black granite memorial with the names engraved on one side and an illustration on the other of a wave releasing 230 seagulls. In July of 2006, an abstract black granite statue of a 10-foot-high lighthouse was added above a tomb holding many of the victim's personal belongings. On June 19, 2013, the NTSB acknowledged in a press release that they received a petition for reconsideration of its investigation into the crash of TWA 800. In 2014, the NTSB declined the petition to reopen the investigation. In a press release, the NTSB stated, After a thorough review of all the information provided by the petitioners, the NTSB Mm -hmm. denied the petition in its entirety, because the evidence and analysis presented did not show the original findings were incorrect. So basically, yeah. these are people who think, you know, there was some other cause who want the investigation reopened. And like the conspiracy theorists were being like, oh, well, yeah, you you know. So yeah, the people who started the petition, you know, wanted the anti-speed to reconsider because they uh, believed that maybe the plane was a target of terrorism or missiles mm-hmm. or some other weapon. And they wanted, you know, that investigated. And ultimately, the NTSB denied it, saying that they were, they were confident in their yeah. findings. They did not want to reopen the investigation. So like I said, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about this incident. I think it's pretty thorough investigation the NTSB did. I think that they nailed it yeah. in their findings, despite how difficult it was uh, for them to come to those conclusions. Uh, but that's it. That's TWA 800. People have been asking about this one on social media for a long time. And like I said, I've been intimidated about talking <laughs> about this and about covering this one just because there's so much other stuff. I mean, just even to the point, I know I keep bringing it up and harping on it. The NTSB even wondered if a meteorite hit this plane. Like they were, there, there was such a wide-ranging investigation into this incident. Yeah. It's just a lot to wrap your head around. Yeah. Well, you did a good job of wrapping it up in a nice package. Thank good you. Job. I want to give a shout-out to Dennis, who uh, yeah. does the bulk of our research. Uh, thank you, Dennis, for, for putting it all together. So did they ever move those air conditioners? <laughs> like, they they did do that, right? So I can't say 100% definitively. I, I'm looking at a cutaway of the, mm-hmm. newer, the newest version of the 747, which is the 747-8. Uh-huh. And... It's hard to see, but it looks like the the packs are in a different location. Uh, okay. They're no longer under the fuel tank. It looks to me... Remember, the 747 has that hump at the top. It looks like they're at the rear of the mm-hmm. hump now, is what it looks okay. like to me, based on this diagram. That's good. That makes... That's, you know, reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm positive that they would have had to have done something to try to minimize that heat distribution. So, I mean, uh, there are a lot of lessons learned. And, you know, in general, on top, not only air conditioning pack location. You know, they also worked on separating high voltage and low voltage wires. Uh, they did further research into these um, coatings that can develop these oxides on the uh, wiring that can lead to some ignition. So a lot has been done to prevent this kind of incident, which is why we haven't heard of another incident like this. You know, yeah, the industry learns from mistakes and learns from previous incidents yeah. like this one in order to make flying safer so that um, it's not something you have to worry about anymore. You know, airplanes are still the safest way to travel, hands down. Yeah. But that's it, TWA 800, a four-year-long investigation that, you know, even as recently as 2013, 2014, people are still asking questions about, you know, still wanting further information about. It's a, it was a big one, uh, very, yeah. very monumental uh, incident. 
And uh, if you'd like to see any supplemental material, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We've got lots of info out there. And it, it's a convenient way to not only get supplemental information, but also to uh, share it with other people who may be interested. Mm-hmm. Maybe this week recommend sharing it to someone who lives in New York. <laughs> okay. Let, let's expand it. New York or New Jersey. Yeah. They kind of go hand in hand. So thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we're going to take a, a short break after this. We'll have more episodes here real soon. So this is a good time for you to, to share the podcast with someone for them to catch up on our back catalog of episodes. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, some brand new ones. And we'll have some bonus episodes that are uh, not covering specific accidents, but just talking about... Uh, Aviation-related stuff or just some fun stuff. But yeah, it's a, it's a great time for someone to jump in and uh, listen to the back catalog. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening.